what I'd like to, the thought I'd like to begin with um, is how quiet the resurrection is in this account, in all the accounts for that matter. Do you, have you ever remarked at how quiet the resurrection of Christ is? Just how subtle. It's a very subtle moment in Scripture. Far more subtle than our celebration of it. I mean, our celebration's bright and loud and bold. It's not like that in the Word. It's sublime, it's quiet, it's careful, it's delicate. I mean, the Lord appears. The, the disciples in the first reading don't even actually see the Lord. They see the empty tomb, and then they have to wrestle with the reality of that. It really is quiet. It's about a page in each gospel. So of the 20 chapters in John, it's one chapter. The 24 in Luke, it's one. 16 in Mark, it's one. The 28 in Matthew, it's one. I, uh, I'll give you just a thought, and I, I can't, this thought squirts out of my hands. I can't hold it. It's the sort of thing I just, I, I'm going to say it, but I, I, I still don't think it's complete. But I do think the resurrection, the account of the resurrection of Christ is for us, Christian. It's for you. It's for me. It's a gift. And in that way, it's perfectly fine if it comes to me quietly, because uh, that's often how the Spirit comes to us. It's for us. And I think uh, you'll maybe we'll see that this morning. What I'd like to do is I'd like to reread the passage of Mary Magdalene, uh, Christ's appearance to her, and then we'll read the passage that follows. And really, this morning, there's there's a verse in each one that I just want I want us to meditate on a verse in each one of them, and and connect it sort of around this idea of the comparative. The comparative silence. Just think of the ministry of Christ, how bold it was. A week ago, he was riding into the city. Hosanna! I can't even say it loud enough. I'd be embarrassed. Like, Hosanna! You blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Palm branches and noise and fanfare. He had just healed Lazarus, and there was all this. I mean, Twitter was alive with... (laughs) What he had done to Lazarus, I mean, it was the buzz. Everybody was, it was just, everybody was about Jesus and, and this and that. There was so much noise. There, in his ministry, there's all of this noise. He goes into the city. He turns over tables in the temple, more noise. He heals the blind man in the temple, more noise. It's just the mob that follows to the cross. I mean, everywhere you go, there was the words and works of Christ were right up in your face. Almost nobody experiences the resurrection. Just a few. Hmm. And Mary's one of them. Let's look. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, 
she stooped to look into the tomb. Now let me stop there real quick. What happened in the reading, it, it talks about Mary early in the morning before the sun rises, she gets to the tomb, sees the stones rolled away, and rushes back to tell the disciples what had happened. And then it talks about Peter and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Peter and John apparently rush to personally witness it for themselves. And they get there, they see the empty tomb. They don't see the Christ, they see the empty tomb. That scripture doesn't tell you that Mary also went back, but Mary went back. She just kind of followed them, I suppose. So in verse 9 and 10, the disciples are peering and wondering what's happening. And they're, they're leaving, but she's remaining. Weeping outside the tomb. And in verse 12 it says, And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will go to take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. Okay, well, you know, if, if we just begin to look, I feel confronted with the subtlety and the quietness of this scene. I mean, it's happening to a solitary person. The risen Christ is being witnessed by one person. And that person is, I mean, for all sorts of reasons, we should be surprised as Mary Magdalene. It's not the disciples. Kind of goes against cultural expectation to grace a young woman with this, this part in the play. And even Jesus' appearance in it is nondescript. We know no, more about the appearance of the angels. They are more notable fixtures in the account than Jesus. He's mistaken for the gardener. I have to assume he was backlit by the sun or something. I, I, you know, in your mind, you try to play this out. Uh, I like that he's backlit. But he's mistaken for the gardener for crying out loud. That's quiet. That's really quiet. There's a verse here. It's verse uh, 13 that, that really catches my attention. Woman, why are you weeping? They said. She said, and she said to them, they have taken away my Lord. Now that caught me. 
In her mind, Jesus is dead. And yet she calls him Lord. That's, that's a follower. Jesus is still her Lord. Even in, in her mind, he's, you know, she wants to, she thinks he's dead. If she tells the gardener, if you'll just tell me where his body is, the Hebrews were extremely, extremely careful and meticulous about how they cared for the dead. Major part of their, their tradition and their understanding of respect. And so for her, she's pleading. She's pleading for the body. Could I just have the body so that the body is not desecrated? That's, that seems to be what's in her heart. But she's referring to him as my Lord. And that... So I'm, I'm traveling with this. Why is Easter so quiet? Why is Sunday supposed to be, this Sunday supposed to be loud even though the testimony of Scripture is so silent? And it found a home in this idea. This, Jesus appears to Mary, but Mary is a follower of Jesus. And I thought about that. Mary is a follower of Jesus. She is will, she's willfully, willingly, voluntarily desiring to follow the Lord. She's a Christ follower. I just let that thought build, and I, and I said, well, what about the next narrative? In the next narrative, Jesus appears to followers. Not perfect followers. They're fearful, locked away in a room, but nonetheless, followers nonetheless, right? So we certainly don't want to be judgmental of flawed followers, but they're followers. And then the next one, in 24 on, is when Jesus appears to the disciples again with Thomas. And we could say, well, Thomas maybe didn't do everything right, but Thomas nonetheless was a follower, was a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I went, wow, that's interesting. Jesus appears... It seems like in small ways, but I said, well, but in every way, he's appearing to followers. And I said, well, that, that, I wonder what that's like in Luke. If you look in Luke, every appearance of Christ is to followers. The two members on the road to Emmaus, followers of Christ. I went to Matthew. I said, Matthew, followers. In Mark, it's all followers. In Matthew, you may be thinking, those of you who kind of know the story, they go, what about the guards? There were the guards. Uh-huh. Yeah. They were zapped by the brilliance of the angels. Missed the resurrection. <laughs> Missed it. Didn't make the cut. Now, if you are, if you get like a gold star in Bible knowledge, you may be saying, yeah, but in 1 Corinthians, see some of you like, this would be really a gold star. Cry, uh, Paul, the apostle, gives an accounting of the resurrection of Christ. And he says, he's defending it. In fact, the song we sang... There's a connection to the 1 Corinthians 15, but he begins to talk about the importance of the resurrection of Christ. And he's giving evidence for it. And he says, for Christ appeared first to Cephas, and then to the 12, and then once again to James, and the disciples also. And he's going down the litany, and he says, and at one point he appeared to as many as 500. People? Nope. 500 of the brethren. Now maybe I missed one. Certainly, it doesn't need to be categorically true to make the point. It appears to me that the resurrection of the Lord, the resurrection of Christ, is a gift to the followers. Hear this, Christian. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a gift to you. 
the proclamation of, of Christ, the proclamation of the message of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the work of Christ on the cross. That is to be broadcast. I'm not saying that we hide the, the knowledge of the resurrection. I'm saying the nature of the message of Christ is to broadcast far and wide God's call to mankind to himself. He sends a messenger ahead of him to make straight the way of the Lord and to challenge the world to repent for the kingdom of God is near. And then Christ himself comes and says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Christ's ministry and his work and his message all work together to say to the person watching, the onlooker or the witness or the person who hears the testimony, something about me is not right. And he has it. This distance between me and God Christ has come to close that distance. All of that knowledge, right? The whole world, it seems that the message and the ministry and the work of Christ is intended to be seen by the whole world. But in a way, the joy of the resurrection is ours. I don't mean it belongs to us in a way that we hide it. I'm saying that it seems like it's given as a gift to some of these people. I would say it this way. The heart of the first 19 chapters of John, the first 23 of Luke, or 15 of Mark, or whatever of Matthew, the heart of that is to bring from us conversion is to put in us conviction, is to challenge us with how we are not, how we ought to be, and who saves us. Jesus Christ saves us. He bears our sins on the cross. He was the perfect sacrifice. All of that is pushed in for, our, for the purpose of our conversion, so that we would change and follow him. The resurrection is a gift. It's a gift that encourages us. It empowers us. It empowers the follower of Jesus. That's what it does primarily. The resurrection of Jesus Christ encourages and empowers the Christ follower. I'll show you an example. Look at the next narrative. Verse verse 21 is what catches me, but I'll read the whole thing. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. You got the picture there? John wants you to know the setting. The disciples are holed up in a room, locked for fear of the Jews. In that, when John uses the phrase the Jews, he's speaking of like the authorities. Even the disciples are Jewish. They were locked up where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. That glad is like overflowing joy, surprised by joy. Not like, oh yeah, Jesus, I'm glad. Not that glad, like really glad. I wish there was a better English word for it. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. 
As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I want to call your attention to verse 21. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. I want you to think about that for a second. As the Father has sent... Okay, not John. Imagine Jesus saying to you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. I want you to imagine... It's not just you. Imagine you're one of the twelve on this very night. When Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And I want you to imagine that as he's saying this, and his hand, even if his hand does do this, I don't know, but if you notice the scars on his hand when he says it. You saw the gash in his side. When he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. I just want you to take all that in. Okay, I think this is... I think this is really big. If you're one of the 12, you know this has been like the worst weekend of your life. Thursday night he was betrayed. You saw it. You saw him praying with anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. Drops of sweat like blood falling to the ground. You saw the soldiers come get him. You saw the mocking and the taunting and the scoffing. You saw the denial. Maybe you participated in the denial. Certainly your spirit was part of the denial because you stood far off because all of a sudden your entire house of cards of faith is coming collapsing down because you thought you were bound for the victory in the Messiah of Christ. Now he's being turned over and you see him being whipped and flogged and beaten and abused and scoffed and mocked and crucified and drugged through the town. Mobs yelling, crucify him. You saw all of that Thursday night, Friday day, Saturday, you've been holed up in a room, Sunday night, you're still there. You know the tomb is empty and you're still full of fear. And he turns to you with his nail-scarred hands and with the wound in his side and he says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Ah, man. What does that mean? I mean, so as the Father has sent me to what? To be a willing sacrifice, so I send you? As the Father has sent me to be a pure vessel of the Father's will in every single circumstance around myself, so I send you? Is that what he, what else could it mean? What else can it mean? So as the Father has sent me to be one who manifests the pure nature of God, so I send you. As the Father has sent me to proclaim the kingdom, so I send you. As the Father has sent me to be holy, pure, righteous, nurturing, full of grace to others, so I send you. What else can it be? Can it be anything else? 
And this is the thing. So in one part, like when I imagine that, I quiver under the pressure of that thought. That it's not a thought. It is the consistent knowledge that God wants me to go where his son has gone. Doesn't he? What does it mean if he says, I am the way? So there's some part of me that withers beneath the thought because I, you know, and I sing I, but I'm speaking for us. We on our best days, we on our best days uh, can't even begin to think of ourselves as attaining to those things to be a pure vessel of the Father's will in every circumstance. Like, uh, I know he wants me to be a pure vessel of his will, but man, pure has never been used to describe me inside of myself. So in some sense, I wither beneath this I, this cost of discipleship, this idea, this expectation that's coming out of the mouth of Christ as disciples of, as the Father has sent me, so I send you to go out in like manner as me, to be a servant and not to be served, to be sacrificial and not to wait, wait to receive gifts, but to give your life, all of your life, to take upon yourselves scars so that others might know the love of God. Go. Like one part of me, us, it's just too big. The other part of me imagines that I'm hearing this from a man who was wounded and dead and yet is living. He's risen. There's part of me that might panic about what, is the, what would the cost of following Jesus involve? What's all that's going to be demanded of me? And then I look over and I see this. There's, I mean, there's a side of me that could either focus on the scars of Christ and wither beneath the burden of being a follower, or I could focus on the fact that the scarred Christ is risen, he's not dead. There's a sense in which. The cost of discipleship seems large and unbearable. There's another sense of it where, but whatever the cost, he has put death to death and is resurrected. It is really quite an amazing picture. Because what I think our tendency to navigate, when we have, when we don't hold on to a strong sense of the resurrection, you know what we do? We shrink in a trit and whittle down the call to fellowship, to discipleship. Because this can't be big if this is small. If that's the case, you live behind a locked door. Your faith does. You lock it inside and you will not risk it. If the call to discipleship, if the call to follow Jesus is so big, if we are supposed to take on Christ and all of what that means, which our mind doesn't even want sometimes to reach for that. We want to stop short. But if the idea of his resurrection is small, then the only way the Christian can even survive is inside of mediocrity which is to whittle the call of God about our lives down to something that's manageable, like do something nice today. 
That is not here. God is not calling us to be nice. God is calling us to be like him. And he's alive. There's a sense, there's an emboldening sense. Right? Je- the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is for you, Christian, to know that there is nothing to which he will call you that will separate you from the eternal love of God. You will rise that we have an inheritance, unblemished, undefiled, pure, waiting for us in heaven. That's what we have through the resurrection of Christ. That's what we've been given. It allows us, it allows us to stand beneath this big idea of what God might be calling for us. It allows us to stand beneath that without trying to restrict it or downplay it or undermine it or tune it or something like that. It allows us to sit beneath the fullness of all of that because we know that Jesus Christ will be with us through all of that. That we're not going to be this and then just head up. The question, what if I die, is an irrelevant question. What if I'm rejected is an irrelevant question. In the grand scheme of things, we make that question as relevant as we want to make it. Now, I want to say this. You know, I, it wasn't long ago that I was sitting there, and you'd get a message or a word like this, and you'd be, it was so big, you're like, what am I supposed to be? Am I supposed to be a missionary to Zaire? I don't think that, that it's different. I don't, this is what I think. I don't know what there's, I don't know what we're supposed to be, you know, what God wants to do with us, it's own question. The only thing I can say is, is I figure he wants them to unlock the door. Like that's maybe the word. Like what are you supposed to do? I would say, well, to what degree is your faith quarantined inside of yourself so that you have, you can, your plan for self-preservation and improvement in this life can be celebrated. That needs to slowly come to an end or abruptly. Maybe in a wink, in a moment, it needs to come to an end. That idea that the faith, that we're gonna cordon it off and lock it down and that, we're, that there's a sense that the Christian in you is a small person hiding to weather this large overall secular story called your life, that needs to be destroyed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has risen to say, unlock that door. And all of who I am needs to creep into all of who you are. And I don't know, I, you know, I don't know. I'm not saying you need to go to Zaire. I think God would just be tickled pink if you were a profound, unlocked believer in your workplace. Or among your friends. That you could then, at least with the knowledge of his resurrection, this idea that God is with me, what can man do against me? There's nothing that can happen that would make me lose this game. That idea, 
would allow you, allow your faith, if you could just raise the latch on the door and let your faith permeate your life. My sense is that the relevance of the resurrection for us is directly related to the relevance of our Christian life. Those of us, to the degree, in different seasons and and the ebbs and flows, I know this to be true, that times in my life when I'm walking closer to the Lord and I'm owning, I'm owning this call to follow more profoundly, the, the knowledge of Christ's resurrection is more meaningful. Some of us go, I don't really know about the resurrection of Jesus. I, would, I might conjecture in your life that you don't make big of the resurrection of Christ because you don't make big of the life of Christ or his call. We don't need a big Christ if we don't carry a big definition of what it means to follow him. I read through the Gospels. I couldn't find it. I so wanted to, I so want, you know, so Jesus appears in this room, which is kind of neat because it's locked. So he's there. And I couldn't find it. I so like to imagine that he, he walked out of that door, opened it up, swung it open and walked out. It's better to me than him disappearing than saying the way we are in this room, the way we 12 are, not anymore. This is how Paul says it. The Apostle Paul writing in Philippians, he's speaking this way, right? He's, he's got this, this heavy weight of the call to follow, this heavy weight which is matched on the balance of life with this magnificent story of the resurrected Christ. That's how his life is being lived, right? We try to balance a small resurrection with a small calling. He's blown up the calling of, of Christ to be what it really is supposed to be. And in that, he's holding on to the resurrection. Listen to what he says. He says this, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Consider rubbish. And then he begins to talk about the things that he yearns to know, and he says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that in any means possible I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul has gotten to a place where he's, he's welcoming, welcoming the grandeur of the call of discipleship so that he can, in living it out, celebrate and know the resurrection for what it really is. My question, Christian, is have you, have you so constrained the call of God in your life that with, if you don't change, you will never appreciate what his resurrection means for you. He's risen. 
He's risen to be our savior. He's risen and he's, he's risen so, and so that we might also follow in his way. Every gospel ends this way. You know, John ends with, as the father has sent me, so I sent you. This is how it sounds in Matthew. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. And lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Luke has one of those. Mark has one of those. All of them, all of them come to the Christian with this surprise by joy of the resurrection of Christ and then turn around and say, therefore, you can now follow me. May we be that way. May we be those people who unlock the door and don't cower in fear. Let me pray. And Lord, we as a church profess to you our faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We acknowledge that the gift of your son is not a gift to be observed or a gift that's given simply because you love us. It's given so that we may be like you. But Father, the true gift is that you will come and conform us to your image, that your spirit will come into us, Lord. Even in the scriptures here, Christ gives this command, so also I send you. And then he follows it up with breathing the spirit on them, Lord, and giving them the authority. Father, that's what we need, Lord. We need, in light of your resurrection, we need to stand beside the resurrected Christ and we need the power of the spirit. Lord, it's my sense that our faith has been sequestered away. May you remove the walls inside of us, the borders, Lord, that all of us, all of us may be Christian, all of who we are. Father, even Paul says, not that I've already attained it, Not that I've finished running, not that I've won this race, but I am running. Lord, we know this burden of of all of who you are is daunting and cumbersome. So not that we can do that, not that it's within reach, but it's good. And in the power of your son and through the work of your spirit, Lord, help us to head there. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name.